Thank you, ladies. If you have your Bible, you can go ahead and turn to Genesis chapter 11. If you have a visitor slip or a prayer slip, we would love to do that. Our deacon will be walking up the aisle. We'd love to join with you in prayer and connect with you if you are visiting. But we're so glad that you're here. Out of all the places that you could be here on a Sunday morning, uh, we're thankful that you are with us uh, here today. Uh, we spent, we'll be spending the next few moments in uh, Genesis chapter 11. And as you're uh, turning there, I'm thankful for the opportunity uh, to stand behind the pulpit and preach, and this was a a very challenging, uh, and a personally challenging passage to study uh, as I prepared, and so I'm thankful uh, for this um, uh, opportunity. Uh, As you're turning there, when I think about the society that we live in, um, I think there's a lot of parallels uh, and overlapping what we're going to see in Genesis chapter 11, that when we look at our society, it seems to me, if you're, especially if you're on social media, uh, that there seems to be a lot of division and a lot of uh, atomization, a lot of breaking apart, a lot of um, shift, a lot of a lot of distrust and hostility, uh, whether it's uh, political line, whether it's religious line, whether it's any any kind of line that you can uh, think of. Uh, there seems to be this real sense of we're just living in different realities uh, on a fundamental level. And I was just reminded that there was an article written by um, a social psychologist named Jonathan Haidt, who's, a, who worked, who's over at NYU. And last year, he came out with this article called Why the Past Ten Years of American Life Have Been Uniquely Stupid. It's a very interesting title. And what he does with this title, he uses Babel, as, in our passage today, in Genesis 11, he, uh, he uses Babel and the story of Babel as kind of his illustration to say that we're just living in different, a different world, that uh, people are speaking different languages, they're spreading out, they're spreading apart from each other, and he, he's saying that this is the world that we inhabit. Everything that happens at Babel and everybody spreads apart, speaking different languages, that's what's going on in our society right now. And he, he, the case that he makes, and pretty convincingly, I think, uh, he says that for any strong society to remain strong, you need three things. Number one, you say you need, people need, need to be able to trust each other. He said we don't really do that anymore. He said that we need to have uh, faith in our institutions. He said we don't really have that that much anymore either. And then he also says that we need to have shared stories. So social capital, strong institution, and shared stories. And his argument is that over the last 10 years, our society has weakened on all three uh, groups. And and the reason for that, he argues, is that about 10 years ago, a little over 10 years ago, was the the advent and the rise of social media. And he argues, again, pretty convincingly that because of social media and cell phones and smartphones in particular and all this, this dramatic interconnectivity, there, there's a danger that comes with that. And it really very much led into the fragmentation of our society today, especially when it comes to teenagers, to Generation Z. Uh, it, the, the effects that smartphones, especially social media, have on Gen Z is... Um, very, very serious. And so he writes this article, and he uh, thankfully ends on a good note. He, he says that there is, he does think that there's hope for the future, um, and he kind of gives his reason uh, why. And I, and I certainly agree with him to some, to some extent, but I, where I think he falls short is that he, he's not a Christian, he's not a believer, uh, he, that he, he leads God out of the picture. And I think any, any solution, by definition, is going to require God intervening. And so I think we see a little bit of that uh, today in our time in Genesis chapter 11, that we're going to see a significant division. 
Uh, but we're going to be on a journey today. So Genesis 11 is where we're going to start, and then we're going to kind of move around in some different passages. And what I'm hoping that we see um, at the end of our time together in just a few moments is that, yes, there's division uh, back then and even now, uh, but we're not without hope. We're not without hope. And so that, that's my, my goal for us uh, today. So number one, uh, the first point, we see the tower for God. The tower for God. And so in Genesis chapter 11, we meet a people who migrated from the east. And you'll recall that when, when God drove Adam and Eve out of the Garden of Eden in Genesis chapter 3, he closed off the east side. So they've constantly been moving away, trying to reconcile this relationship with God on our own terms. And so in, in verse 2, we see that they find... They come across the land, the plain of Shinar, which is essentially another name for Babylon. Babel and Babylon are the same thing. Babel and Babylon are the same thing, more on that in just a few moments. But we actually see Babel mentioned in chapter 10 for the first time in verse 10 as one of the lands of Nimrod. Nimrod is the great-grandson of Noah. And so he, he settles this land where we first see it mentioned. And then in, uh, in our section today, they get there, and they, they decide to uh, set up a city for themselves, to establish themselves. And in order to do this, in order to build this city and to establish themselves, they decide to build a gigantic tower. This was a very interesting tower. This tower was called a ziggurat. And a ziggurat was something that was very, uh, very common in this day and age. It was not, as I thought it was until relatively recent memory, uh, like a skyscraper, which is what I thought it was. It was very much what you see on the picture, kind of like what, if you have small children and, and you go to the beach and you build sandcastles, chances are if, if you're going to cheat and you get those little plastic frames and you pack all the dirt, the sand in there, and you, you put the mold in, you start working your way up. It had that, uh, that sort of structure. Now, the ziggurat was very interesting, and here's why. It's not that the idea behind a ziggurat, basically what it was, it was a connection between heaven and earth. But it was really one direction. It was, really, it was not so much to go from the bottom to the top, but rather from the top, the top to go down to the bottom. Here's what I mean. At the top of the ziggurat, at the top of this tower, they would have a small little shack. And the idea behind this shack is they put a bed in there and a table. And so it's just like a, like a bed and breakfast at the top of this shack, at the top of this tower. And they would have, what the people that were making these ziggurats, these towers, they're worshiping this God. And what they were hoping is that their God would come down from heaven, take a little bit of a nap, get a little bite to eat in this, in this, uh, at the top of the tower, and then walk down the stairs to where there would be a temple. The temple would be at the bottom of the ziggurat, the bottom of the, of the tower, and that's where everybody worshiped. And so the idea, again, bringing the God from, the top, from heaven to uh, this bottom, where the temple was, and then at that temple, that's where this God would be worshiped. And there's a lot of these that are still standing. You can, you can Google them online. They're very much still around. And they, they varied in range. Uh, you could have ziggurats that were six stories tall, all the way up to as tall as the Superdome, about 250 feet or so. And so they, they, they range in size. They range in all sorts of dimensions. And so what, when you look at these ziggurats, look at these towers, you can often find out a lot about, about what something is named. When you look at the name of something, you get an idea of what it is used for. To give you three quick examples, number one of them was, one of the, the towers meant temple of the foundation of heaven and earth. Pretty easy to see what they were hoping for there. Another one meant temple that links heaven and earth. And another one meant temple of the stairway to pure heaven. 
So again, the idea behind these towers was that they would, they would build these things and that the God that they were praying to, that they were hoping that they could, could induce or even compel this deity to come down from heaven, see what they had done, take a quick nap, get a bite to eat, and then go down to the temple, be worshipped for a while, and then return to heaven where he, where it, he or she uh, uh, came from. And the names, again, matter as well. You might know, you might remember that the name Bethel means house of God. Bethel means house of God. Uh, Babel means the gates of the gods. And so, again, there's this idea here that what was going on here wasn't just simply uh, an exercise and seeing uh, how, much, how tall of a building they could build, but rather the specific function to the tower, which was to bring God down to earth. In verse 5, we see here that there's a really interesting language, and I want to encourage you just to make a mental note of it because we're going to see it again. In verse 5, it said that they want to build this tower with this top in the heavens. You'll see that language again in a moment. So the idea that they could encourage or induce God to come down. And so what's going on here is kind of a two-way thing. So if you go to the mall of Louisiana, go to one of their department stores, you might remember that there's always uh, two uh, elevators, or, excuse me, escalators that are going up. And they're always side by side. There's always one going up, there's always one going down. That's very much what's going on here. If it, it, it's a two-way street. What they're hoping for is not only do they want to bring God down by using this ziggurat, they also want to lift themselves up. They want to bring God down while also lifting themselves up. And that's what you see in verse 6. It says, let us make a name for ourselves so that we're not scattered everywhere. And so whether this means that they want to live on in their family or whether they want to have some sort of widespread recognition, the point is they want to live on. They want to make a name. They don't want to be forgotten. They want to reach the top of the heavens. And if you think about it, that's kind of the, the same struggle that you and I might deal with today, that we're always trying to reach God on our own terms. This was their turn, this was the way that they were doing it, and you and I, if we're not careful, we can try to uh, craft or make a relationship with God on our own own terms. Not what scripture says, not what we know is true according to scripture, but based on what suits our fancies, what's convenient for us. In verse 5, an interesting phrase here, we see how God responds. It says that he came down to see the city and the tower. And to be, it's kind of ironic because the language that's being used here, again, I mentioned the beach a few moments ago. If you have a, a small child and you take him to the beach, I'm guessing that if you took a three-year-old or a four-year-old to the beach and asked them to craft something, a little pile of sand, it's not going to be very tall. And, and, and you're going to have to squat down to see it because it's so small. That's the kind of language that's being here. So ironically, they're trying to build the giant tower and the writer, Moses, uh, writer of Genesis, Moses, inspired by the Holy Spirit, is saying it's so small. Their big, giant, powerful tower is so small, God had to kneel down to see it. And so we see a little bit of irony here. So much power on display. And yet God had to squat down to see it. Verses 6 through 9, we see what God does. Not only does he have to squat down to see it, but he then confuses the language. And the reason he does that is that because if they can't communicate with each other, then they can't possibly finish building this tower. And at the end of verse 6, he says something interesting. He says that, that if they do this, they can, if we don't intervene, if God doesn't intervene, then things are only going to get worse. Because sin never stays static. Sin never remains where it is. Sin always snowballs. Sin always grows. Sin always mutates into something larger and larger. And so God, in order, really as an act of grace, he steps in and confuses their language. 
And there's also another interesting play on words that I want to point your attention to. But again, it's just the irony, or it's just the humor in this, almost sad humor in this, that the word babble and the word confused in the Hebrew sound identical. It's babel, and the word confused is balal. And so Moses, again, by the, whole, by the Holy Spirit, he's kind of having almost like an inside joke saying that, th- that the very word for Babel sound very much similar to the same word for confused. Again, this work of might and strength and recognition does exactly the opposite. And if God didn't care, he would have just left them alone. You should, let, you should let them destroy themselves by their own pride and their own ego and their own misperceived idea of, of self-sufficiency. But because, because God does care, he intervenes. And if you're a parent, you know exactly what this is about. Especially if you're a parent of a small child. Because about 50 times in about three hours, they're probably going to do something to hurt themselves if you left them alone. But what do you do? You're a good parent, and so you intervene. And that's what God does. God is good, and so he intervenes and keeps them from damaging themselves any further. And so from here on out, from this moment on, again, the rest of Scripture, when you see the word Babel and you see Babylon, it's the same exact city. And when, if you're familiar with Babylon, what you see is that, what you might remember is that Babylon is constantly at war with God constantly butting head with the people of God. And so we had the tower for God, and then we had the city against God. The tower for God and the city against God. And so Babel uh, is located in modern-day Iraq, and it it wasn't a small city at all. It was much less Gondolas and more like New York City. Just a complete metropolis, bustling population. One commentator notes that it was the heart of the ancient world and a center of power. And so it's mentioned all throughout the Old Testament, mentioned uh, about 250 times or so all throughout the Old Testament, and it's largely all, all those moments, all those times it, it's referenced, it's antagonistic towards God. And again, just to kind of calibrate where we see that in Scripture, if you're familiar with the stories of Nebuchadnezzar, if you're familiar with the passages of Daniel and a lion den, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. This is all Babylon. This is all the same place. This dynasty lasted about 1,500 years, which is about six times longer than America's been a country. And then when we think about what Babel is and what it represents, we think about it, how it represents wealth and pride. Wealth, it was a, it was a bustling, bustling metropolis, and also pride, especially pride. Well, there's an interesting distinction to be made about Pride. Now, I'm reminded of a book that I read some years ago called Glittering Vices by a woman named Rebecca DeYoung. And she, she makes this helpful distinction, I think, with, with this passage in particular, between pride and vainglory. Pride and vainglory. And here's what she says. She said, pride is a desire for genuine status. Vainglory is a desire for recognition and acclaim. Vainglory is the excessive and disordered desire for recognition and approval from others. What makes vainglory distinct from pride is the love of the show. Prideful people want to be more, want more than anything else to be number one. They see greatness and superiority even in ways that only belong to God. The vainglorious, on the other hand, they seek whatever will bring in the most public applause, whether they deserve it or not. 
They want more than anything to be well-known and widely known. They're going to be well-known and widely known. I think when we look at Babel, we see both. There's prideful and there's vainglory as well. And so then I started thinking, where do we see this today? Where do we see pride in our society today? And I thought of a couple of areas. Number one, culture and technology. I think when we look at American culture and American technology, I think we look at previous generations as ignorant and stupid. Surely in 2023 we know more. After all, we have a computer, a little mini computer in our pocket right now that can tell us anything that we ever want to know right in our pocket. And I can take a selfie while I'm doing it. Surely we know more than other people. But if one thing to, to be able to recall information, it's another thing to know what to do with it. But we look at the technology that we have and we, and we think that we're at the top of the totem pole and so everybody else before us, we should kind of disregard out of hand. And C.S. Lewis had a really colorful phrase about that. He called it chronological snobbery. Chronological snobbery, this idea that every society before us was just simplistic and even maybe idiotic. But have you ever considered the effects that technology has on us? Have you ever considered the effects that technology has on us in this day and age? In the 1980s, there was a social critic named Neil Postman. And Neil Postman wrote this really incredible book called Amusing Ourselves to Death. And in this book, I want to remind you for those who weren't around then, um, that they had like three channels on TV. Three channels on TV with the giant 10-foot rabbit ears in the back. And if you had to sit in certain places in the room to make sure you can get good reception. And there was three channels on TV and there was only news for like an hour or two. And then you did something crazy after you went outside and you went out and played with your friends or whatever. Like you didn't just watch all TV uh, all day. But there was just a certain number of channels that had a certain amount of programming each day. And it, in that context, during that time, Postman writes these words. And what he talks about and in this book, and what he talks about, he, he's worried, in 1985 this was written, he was worried about the effect that the television in particular was going to have on people. This idea of always needing to have information and being surrounded and inundated and just, just floored and flooded with information nonstop. He talked about how there were two worries. That, that one worry might be that information could be withheld. That's certainly fair. But he also talked about this worry of, well, there's just too much and you don't know what to do with it. The, the, the phrase that he used was be that there was so much information that truth would be drowned in a sea of irrelevance. The truth would be drowned in a sea of, of irrelevance. That, which is to say that we just wouldn't care. That there's so much information that ultimately we should don't really care what's true. All that matters is that we're entertained. Perhaps a similar, if you've read Fahrenheit 451, you might remember that the, the main character's wife, Mildred, she basically spent all of her day on a, laying down with a giant TV right in front of her face and she's just watching media all day long. That we're just being hit and flooded with information every second of every day and we just don't care. All that matters is entertainment. And so I was reminded last year of a, a very sad example of this. When the Russia and Ukraine war, uh, the invasion first started, it was February of 2022, I remember watching a news clip from a, from a major corporation, one of the major ones, 
And they were a very somber scene. And it was, all there was was this, this, this very slow shot from left to right of them showing uh, the air, of them playing the air raid sirens. And so it's a very slow, methodical pan from left to right. And all you hear, there's no talking, all you hear is the air raid siren that the invasion's about to happen. And then the station cuts. And it cut to an advertisement for Applebee's. Cut to an advertisement. You hear, first you're hearing the nothing, no talking. You hear the air raid sirens. And then you watch an advertisement for Applebee's with the song, with the song Chicken Fried by the Zac Brown Band. So serious, so serious, so serious entertainment. And that's just the air that we breathe. That's what we're used to. Which is why it's so interesting whenever you're watching the news, breaking news, breaking news, right after these commercials. Right after the word from our sponsors. It's breaking, but it can wait. It's entertainment. We have all this pride in our culture and our technology, and I think we spend very little time thinking about how what the, the damaging and the, the dehumanizing effect that it has on us. We also, see, we also have pride in our money. That it's, one, that it's one thing to work hard, as we were called to do, we're called to, to, to work hard. But it's another thing to, to work hard, to have a lot of money, and then to look at somebody else who has less than you and think that they're inferior. We take pride in our looks, especially in our younger years. We judge ourselves by our appearance, and we look down on others because they look different than us, in whatever way that might take place. And there's an interesting concept called the man and the car paradox. The man and the car paradox. I want you to imagine with me that we're driving down the road and there's this just incredible vehicle that shows up next to us. Or maybe when we pull up this morning, there's this incredible vehicle, whatever your dream car happens to be. Maybe it's a Tesla, maybe it's a nice pickup truck, maybe it's a, a Mustang, maybe it's a Corvette, whatever it is in your mind, you see this car pull up this morning and you think, man, if only I had that car. It's nice, it's red, it's lifted 10 feet off the air, I gotta jump up to get into it. Whatever happened to be, we, we're just thinking about this vehicle, we picture ourselves in this vehicle, and you know what, the person in the vehicle is probably thinking that too. They're thinking, when I show up today, all eyes are on me. But if you think about it, we're not thinking about the person at all. We're just thinking about the car. I'm thinking about the car, you're thinking about the car, the person driving the car is thinking about the car. Everybody thinks that they're looking at them, they're just, looking about the, they're just thinking about the car. We spend all of our time trying to buy things and look a certain way so that we think people will notice us, but really people are just looking at the car. People don't nearly think about our stuff as much as we think about our stuff. Someone once said, no one is, as, no one is impressed with your possession as much as you are. No one is impressed with your possession as much as you are. We pride ourselves in our technology, our looks, our money, even ourselves. And the way that plays out is forgiveness. We, we, we harbor resentment or we don't extend forgiveness to other people because we're prideful. We're prideful, excuse me. I'm better than you. You don't get my forgiveness. You've wronged me. And so that puts me at a, at a higher seat, a higher standing than you. And because you're lower than me, I'm not going to forgive you. That's pride. Pride all throughout our lives. We should, we should exit it a month of pride, celebrating it every day of the week, every moment of the, of the day. 
Pride, pride, pride everywhere we go. The tower for God, the city against God. But now we see the good news. We see the plan of God. The plan of God. And so we're in Genesis 11. And we see the plan of God take place and really start off in Genesis chapter 12. And so this is the problem. We're all Babel. We're all Babylon. We still have that problem today. What, what is the hope that we have? The hope is not being prideful in ourselves. The hope that we have is in God. And so in Genesis chapter 12, we see where God initiates the plan to reconcile his wayward people. The people that are spread out all over. We see that plan. Because remember, remember what Babel was about. Babel was about this building this structure to the top of the heavens. With its top in the heavens. And they wanted it top in the heavens, that way that God would come down and visit them. And in Genesis chapter 12, we see God initiating a better plan. In Genesis chapter 12, verses 1 through 4, we see how God approaches Abram. Later in Genesis 17, it'll be Abraham, same person. And he said, that, he said to Abram that I'm going to make you a great nation. Didn't have any children yet. He's incredibly old. Both him and his wife, they have no children. But God, but God comes to this man and said, I'm going to make you a great nation and the rest of the world will be blessed. And then in Genesis chapter 15, verse 6, it says that, that Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness. Which is a beautiful verse. But one of the things that we can say about that is that it's your belief that makes you right with God, not your works. That you can't ever work your way up to God. Your belief in God, your belief namely in the person and work of Jesus Christ is what makes you righteous, not your works. It's the work of Christ. And then we fast forward to Genesis chapter 28, verses 12 through 14. And at this point, this is Abraham's grandson, Jacob. And Jacob is out traveling. And while he's traveling, something happens. Let's read verse 12 through 14 of Genesis chapter 28. As he, Jacob, as Jacob dreamed, and behold, there was a ladder set up on earth, and the top of it reached to heaven. And behold, the angels of God were ascending and descending on it. And behold, the Lord stood above it and said, I am the Lord, the God of Abraham, your father, and the God of Isaac. The land on which you lie, I will give to you and your offspring. Your offspring shall be like the dust of the earth, and you shall spread abroad to the west and to the east and to the north and to the south. And in you and your offspring shall all the families of the earth be blessed. We see another structure with his top in the heavens. This one's not man-made, it's God-made. And God here is saying that through Jacob, through this line, verse 14, that this family will be the mean, the vehicle by which the rest of the world is blessed. Now, where do we see this plan accomplished? Where in Scripture do, does God do this? We see the work of God, number four. The work of God. How did God bless the rest of the world? We see the plan of God, now we see the work of God. How does he initiate this solution? What's the good news, the predicament that we're in? What is the good news for Babylon? Well, we see that, that that's happened primarily in the person and work of Jesus Christ. In John chapter 6, Jesus does this incredible miracle. He takes some, takes some bunny bread, and he takes some minnows, and he takes this small offering of, of food, and he feeds thousands of people. 
in John chapter 6. Enough to fill the river center in Baton Rouge with a handful of bread and a handful of fish. And the next day, they're talking about it. I mean, you can't stop talking about something like that. The next day, they're talking about this. And in verse 38, this is what Jesus said. In John chapter 6, verse 38, Jesus says, For I have come down from heaven, not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. And in verse 51, Jesus says, I am the living bread that came down from heaven. If anyone eats of this bread, he will live forever. And the bread that I will give for the life of the world is my flesh. And what's he talking about there? He's talking about going to the cross. He's saying that he came down from heaven to go up to the cross. And this is why in Mark chapter 15, when he was being mocked, And challenge. In Mark chapter 15, verse 30, they challenge him. They say, save yourself and come down from the cross. But he came down to go up to the cross. And this is why Philippians chapter 2, verses 6 through 8, Paul writes, talking about Jesus, says, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. He came down to go up. And this, I love how Glenn Scrivener, who's a Christian thinker, I love how he put it in these words. He said, we went from nothing to dust to delusion of grandeur. He, Jesus, went from eternal glory to flesh to crucifixion. We amounted to nothing and laid claim to everything. He had everything and made himself nothing. Our come down was deserved. His come down was deliberate. Our uprising was demonic. His uprising was divine. Our story is self-exaltation and then humbling. His story is self-humbling and then exaltation. Our pride brought the fall. His humility brought salvation. What's the solution to our division? What's the solution to our fragmentation, our Babylon? It's Christ. It's Jesus. It's God in the flesh. And this is why in Acts chapter 2, again, I told you we're going to skip around. In Acts chapter 2, there's this incredible passage where we see the birth of the church. It's Pentecost, it's 50 days after Passover, and, and all these people are in town. This, this was the festival to go to. Everybody goes to the festival of the Passover, or Pentecost, excuse me. And notice what happens in Acts chapter 2. In verses, in verses, really the first six verses, but in the first six verses of Acts chapter 2, we see the Holy Spirit come down and do work. And the Holy Spirit comes down and changes their speech. Look at verses 5 and 6. It says, Now there were dwelling in Jerusalem Jews, devout men from every nation under heaven. And at this sound, the multitude came together, and they were bewildered, because each one was hearing them speak in his own language. Babel had been reversed. All that happened all the way back in Genesis chapter 11 had been reversed. That God has taken that and has rewound 
the tape, as it were, only by a work of God that an atomized and fractured society can become whole again. We've seen the tower for God. We've seen the city against God. We've seen the plan of God and the work of God. And now you and I this morning can rest in the hope of the future with God. The future with God. Because the question is, how does it affect us right now? Why does this matter right now? We talked about how this fragmentation comes mostly from pride, vainglory. We talked about how the antidote to this fragmentation is not us mustering up our own strength and fixing things ourselves. Because let's just be honest. Just look at your own track record for the last month. How's that gone? How's it gone well for me? We can't do it in ourselves. And it's only through the coming of Jesus that down, he come down at the bread of heaven that he, and he offers himself his life to those who would eat. Again, John chapter 6, verse 51, Jesus said, I am the living bread that came down from heaven. If anyone, if anyone eats of this bread, he will live forever. Have you eaten of that bread today? In Philippians 2 that we just read a moment ago, you might have noticed that I stopped at verse 8. In verse 8, it says that he, he humbled himself to death, even to death on the cross. Now, if the story ended there, that would be an awful story. That would be a very bad and sad and hopeless story. But it doesn't end. Look at verse 9. He came down, he, he humbled himself to death, even to death on a cross. Verse 9. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name. So that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth. And every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Because Jesus didn't stay dead. He came down, was lifted up, and then was exalted above all things. And we see here that every knee will bow that Jesus is Lord. If you think about it, every religion, and more or less, there's always exception to the rule, but every religion, broadly speaking, is geographically concentrated. And so if you go to Asia, it's primarily Buddhist. If you go to the Middle East, it's primarily Muslim. If you go to India, it's primarily Hindu. Only Christianity is a truly global religion. Matter of fact, the majority of Christians aren't even in America, it's in the global south. And in just a few years, there are going to be more Christians in Africa than there will be in America. The global religion. In 1912, there was a medical missionary named Dr. William Leslie. And William Leslie went to the tribal people in this remote corner of the Democratic Republic of Congo. And he got married. And he went to this small little village in the middle of the jungle that was, that was infested with leopards. And they had like charging buffaloes and like armies of ants. I mean, it was just a rough time. He lived there for 17 years. And his, his desire, his goal was to go there and set up a mission station and then share the gospel with these people in the middle of nowhere in Congo. Lived there for 17 years. Also, too, his, one of his children was born out there that a hurricane strike the night before. And so things were rough, and it ended rough, unfortunately. It ended on, on a bad note. And so he left 
and he would ask not to return by one of the tribal leaders. And, and they made up, they eventually made up, but it ended on a bad note. And so he returns home, and, not, and he felt like a failure. And he passed away nine years later, feeling like a failure. About 100 years later, in 2010, there was a mission team that went out there in that same area. And what they did, they, they got in this little rickety canoe, and they had to cross a, a river at about half a mile wide, and then they had, a, they had a hike a couple, 10 miles into the jungle. 10 miles into the jungle. And what they were hoping, based on two previous reports, they were hoping to find like one or two Christians. That may, or, or even just maybe people that had heard the name of Jesus. That's what they were hoping to find. They found something quite different. Instead of just finding one or two people who had maybe heard the name of Jesus before in this remote corner in the middle of nowhere in Congo in the jungle, Instead, what they found was a network of churches. They found this network of churches. They went to eight different villages over about 34 miles. They found eight different churches across eight different villages. One of those villages had a thousand person cathedral. And people would walk miles to come to this cathedral. Instead of seeing just maybe one or two people that maybe heard the name of Jesus, God used the work of this man who felt like a failure to plant a swath of churches. Each church had his choir. They wrote their own songs. All from the work that God used the work of this man. He felt like a failure. And you know what? When we read scripture, we're going to meet some of those people. We see that in Scripture. In Revelation, we see that... Actually, let's turn there. Revelation chapter 18. We see... Oh, excuse me, Revelation 7. Revelation 18, we see this, the, the demise of Babylon. All throughout the book of Revelation. Uh, Revelation chapter 18, Babylon, it describes it having the, the sin, her sin, to heap as high as heaven, that Babylon is no more. In Revelation chapter 7, we see that if we are in Christ today, that our brothers and sisters in this, from this remote corner of Congo are going to be around the throne. Revelation chapter 7, verses 9 through 10. John said, After this I looked, and behold, a great multitude that no one could number, from every nation, from all tribes and peoples and languages, standing before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed in white robes, with palm branches in their hand, and crying out with a loud voice, Salvation belongs to our God, who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. Our brothers and sisters from some no-name place in the middle of some jungle in Africa are going to be there. We won't be able to speak this. <laughs> they don't speak English. I don't speak whatever it is they speak, but we're going to be together worshiping the same Savior. This fragmented society is going to be brought together again because the Church of Christ is kaleidoscopic. Different, but yet together. Diverse, but yet unified. Split apart, but then brought together again. Not in and of themselves, not in and of their own power, not because they made themselves right again on their own terms, not because they were strong enough or awesome enough, but only because of the finished work of Christ. Which is why Paul in Ephesians chapter 2 said that we were once strangers and aliens, God brought it back together again. God did it, not us. Our pride drives us apart. Humility and understanding what Jesus did on the cross is what brings us together again. 
every nation, tribe, people, and language at the throne of God. Are you in that number this morning? Has your pride blinded you from your need for God? Blinded you of your need for God? One of the Puritans said that the higher a man lifts himself up, the further he is from God. And the lower a man humbles himself, the nearer he is to God. Very paradoxical. The higher we lift ourselves up, the further away we are. The lower we put ourselves, the closer we are. When we're prideful, we're split apart from our creator and from ourselves. The good news is that Jesus is the one who takes broken things and makes them whole again. So may we be the one who, among the ones who say salvation belongs to our God, who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. And if we're going to boast about anything, if there is anything that we're going to boast about, may it not be in our money, may it not be in our looks, may it not be in our self-perceived intellect, may it not be in anything else, but may we boast in the cross of Christ. That's what unifies us. That's the hope that we have. That's the hope that this world needs to hear. And that's the hope that you and I get to rest in. That because Jesus put himself down, came down, lifted up on a cross, and then exalted on the throne, I don't have to be on the throne because Jesus is. And that's the Jesus that we get to tell the people about. That's the Jesus I want to rest in. That's the Jesus I want us all to rest in. His finished work at the cross, not mine. So have you responded to that today? Are you, are you boasting in yourself or are you boasting in the cross? Let's pray together. Father, I thank you for your word this morning. And I thank you for the finished work of Jesus on the cross on our behalf. Father, we struggle with pride. We struggle with our temptations. We struggle with so many things. And and. It's our pride that keeps us from confessing them. It's our pride that keeps us from admitting them because we just want to think and pretend that we have it all together. Father, I pray you would help us to see our need for you, help us to remember our need for your grace and your mercy, and help us to see and know that you are good, you are close to the brokenhearted, you are a refuge in times of trouble, you are a stronghold for those oppressed, and that you hear the calls of your people. So Father, we pray that you would hold us close to yourself and that we would remember our need for you and that we would respond accordingly, that we would trust only in the finished work of Christ, that while we were your enemies, Christ died for us. So help us direct in that this morning. We pray this in Jesus' name, amen. Let's stand and let's sing.